questions and answers. Is our planet unique? If so, how do we know this? Does it direct us to an intelligent creator? Or did it come into being by some other means? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, let's listen as Pat will be speaking with astronomer Hugh Ross about this very topic. Here with part one of The Improbable Planet is Pat Zucran. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith in Christ and provide biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, is our planet Earth unique? How likely is it that there could be life on other planets? What does it take for life to exist on a planet? Does the evidence in astronomy and cosmology point to an intelligent designer, or is it a threat to our belief in Christ and the existence of God? Well, to help us address these issues today is astronomer Hugh Ross. Dr. Hugh Ross is an astronomer and best-selling author. Some of his books include Navigating Genesis, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, and Why the Universe is the Way It Is. Dr. Ross earned a Ph.D. in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and for several years he continued his research on quasars and galaxies as a postdoctoral fellow at the California Institute of Technology. And today he leads a great ministry called Reasons to Believe, an organization dedicated to demonstrating that science and biblical faith are allies and not enemies. So, Dr. Ross, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Oh, my pleasure. Well, Dr. Ross, tell us how you as a scientist came to believe in an intelligent designer and came to believe in the creation account and in Jesus Christ. Well, my astronomy was probably the major factor. I mean, I've been studying astronomy since I was seven years of age. I was at age 16, I realized that the universe must have a beginning. And if it's got a beginning, there must be a beginner. And so starting at age uh, 16, 17, I began to study the great philosophers, was rather disappointed in what they had to say about the beginner, then began to look at the world's great religions and their holy books, and after a two-year study, recognized that the Bible alone was the inspired, error-free Word of God and that it was the only book that correctly predicted future scientific discoveries and historical events. And so I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible at age 19, giving my life to Jesus Christ, tried to find Christians in churches, and being Canada, and that's where I was raised and educated, I wasn't really getting anywhere there. But when I showed up at Caltech, that's where I met serious Christians for the first time. They helped me get involved in a church, and I've been serving on the church staff of that uh, church uh, ever since that time. And it was my church that helped me launch Reasons to Believe. Hugh, tell us how was it that you discovered the biblical account best accommodated the scientific evidence out there, as opposed to the other religious works out there in Hinduism and Islam and other religions? Well, when I looked at the other holy books, I, I immediately went to their creation accounts, their creation texts. And yes, when you look at the Hindu or the Buddhist uh, or the ones that you see in the Quran, it's clear that they are filled with internal contradictions and uh, also with external contradictions. So I knew that that wasn't the pathway to truth. But when I picked up the Bible, I recognized that everything you see in Genesis 1 is in the correct chronological sequence. It's all correctly described. I was impressed that uh, Genesis followed the scientific method, followed it perfectly. 
later on I found out why. That's where the scientific method came from, so a course of course it follows the scientific method. I also discovered that the Bible got all the cosmology right. So when I went through the Psalms and Job and Proverbs and Isaiah, uh, I could see that the model for the cosmic creation event that we astronomers had discovered was actually predicted in the Bible uh, thousands of years earlier. And so I realized the only way this could be happening is if this book was inspired by the one that did all the creation activity. Now, tell us a little bit about what you just said there, that Genesis followed the scientific method. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I run into a lot of people who have a scientific background and think Genesis is teaching scientific nonsense, but they come to that conclusion by failing to follow the biblical testing method. And what you notice is before we get into the six creation days, Genesis 1-2 tells you the point of view, the frame of reference in which you're to interpret the account of the six days. That's step one of what we call the scientific method. Don't interpret until you first establish the frame of reference. Step two, don't interpret until you recognize the starting conditions. Well, notice that Genesis 1-2 gives you the four initial conditions for the primordial earth, that it's formless and void, empty of life and fit for life. Darkness covers the whole surface of the deep. There's ocean, there's water over the whole surface of, of the earth. Those are the starting conditions. And step three of the uh, scientific method is don't interpret and you notice what happens when, where, and what order. And that's what you see in the six days. It concludes with the final conditions, and scientific method tells you only when you've gone through those first four steps are you free to develop an interpretation, and you want to test that by other experiments and observations. And what impressed me about the Bible compared to other, all other holy books, it alone had dozens of texts, major texts that dealt with creation. And so it gave me multiple opportunities to test my interpretation of Genesis 1. For example, I recognize that Job 37, 38, and 39 also take you through the content of the six creation days. And so looking for what is the most literal and consistent way to interpret all the creation texts of the Bible, and it eliminates the controversy and the confusion about what the Bible teaches about creation. Now, Hugh, you also stated that the studies we've had in cosmology matches with the Genesis account. Explain that right. for us a little bit. What impressed me about the Bible is that it was the only holy book I picked up that spoke about the beginning of the universe as a beginning of space and time itself. In fact, I was particularly impressed with the Bible saying that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything. So that also gave me an interesting clue on how to interpret science. The way to interpret science is to put it in the context of God's goal of redeeming billions of human beings. But the other thing I noticed is that 11 places in the Bible, it speaks about the expansion of the universe. Not until 1925 did any astronomer even hint that we may be living in an expanding universe. But six different Bible authors said so more than 2,000 years ago. They also said the laws that govern the heavens and the earth are fixed, they don't change, and that one of those laws is a pervasive law of decay. And, you know, with your junior high physics, you understand that if everything is decaying, the laws of physics don't change, and the universe is expanding from the space-time beginning, it must get colder and colder as it gets older and older 
in a highly predictable way. And today we know all those biblical statements about the universe indeed are correct. Well, now, Hugh, that was a lot of great information you gave. If people want to review that information you gave, where can they read about that kind of information you give? Well, they can go to our uh, website, reasons.org, and you'll see a free article you can read, and it says, Big Bang, the Bible taught it first. Oh, fantastic. And, of course, it's in several of my books, like Why the Universe is the Way it Is. Now, Hugh, you know, some people say, well, you can't take the Genesis account. I mean, it's not a scientific account, and you shouldn't read too much science into it. But you see a lot of consistency there, don't you? Well, moreover, it's like Moses went to great pains to communicate that it was a scientific account. I mean, the way it's worded, the sequential days, the phrase, and it was so. I mean, it's like I can't see Moses going to any greater extent than he did to tell you This is a chronology of actual creation miracles that God performed, and particularly when you compare it with Psalm 104, Proverbs 8, and Job 37 to 39. I don't see any way you can avoid that this is a statement of actual events, and this is the order in which they took place. So you're viewing the biblical creation account as a historical account, not some kind of allegory or polemic or something. You're viewing it as a historical account here. Well, I am. I don't deny that it's teaching doctrine. I mean, I look at Genesis 1, and it's laying out the doctrine of the Trinity. I do see it as a polemic against the creation myths that existed in the ancient Near East, but it's also a chronology of actual creation events. It's a scientific account of what happened to the universe, Earth, and Earth's life. Now, Hugh, there are several theories of creation out there, and one you know, that get people a lot of confused is the doctrine of theistic evolution. What exactly is that, and and what's your position on theistic evolution? Well, theistic evolution has a broad range. I mean, we're engaging uh, many different theistic evolution organizations that reasons to believe. And, uh, you know, some, I would say, are deists, where they believe that God created the universe and then simply lets natural process do everything else from that point onward. I've also run into evolutionary creationists who say, you know, maybe the origin of life is a miraculous event, but after that, it's natural Darwinian-type principles that explain the history of life, and some say, yes, it's Darwinian evolutionary principles, but God guides and directs it. But as I read the biblical creation text, it's God directly intervening in discoverable ways. You know, what particularly impressed me when I first opened up the Bible, it talks about six days of creation, each of which has a definite start point and an end point. There's an evening and a morning for the first six days, but there is no evening and morning for the seventh day. And it's during the seventh day that God stops his work of creating. And we're still in that seventh day, as it tells us in Hebrews 4 and Psalm 95 and John 5. Now, what that tells me is, as a scientist, I should see a discord, a dichotomy between what happens before human beings and what happens after. And indeed, we do. We see a huge amount of evidence for rapid, efficient speciation before human beings appear and virtually none afterwards. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he rests. To me, that's the primary piece of evidence that theistic evolutionary models are not going to work. I think we've got the physical evidence and the biblical statements that tell us that. 
So we do a lot of speaking on that very subject. Why the Bible and the record of nature, the record of life and history of Earth, is compatible in telling us it's God that miraculously stepped in, not just once or twice, but millions of times to ensure we have just the right life on the planet at just the right time. Now, Hugh, we're talking about your most recent book here, The Improbable Planet here that's just come out. Now, tell us a little bit about the title, The Improbable Planet. Why that title? Well, I probably would have preferred the uh, title Habitation for Redemption. I mean, the subtitle kind of gets at it, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. But really what the book is all about are the miracles that God performed so that billions of human beings can live on the planet at one time, develop a technology where that technology can be used to bring billions of human beings to faith in Jesus Christ, not in millions of years, but in just thousands of years. And you know, the book talks about the, all the events that took place in the history of life. Literally every life form that God created plays a role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. And all of terrestrial history leads up to a 10,000-year-wide window in which we have extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for growing enough food to feed billions of people, but within an ice age cycle where we got water from melting ice left over from the last ice age, and we got the fertilization of wind-drawn loess uh, that fertilizes the great agricultural plains and explains why we can sustain billions of people on the planet at one time. And a lot of the book deals with this global warming controversy, and I make the point, if you look at the history of Earth, extreme climate stability is the exception, not the norm. We're living in a time in the history of the Earth that's never been manifested before, and it was set up by five simultaneous, gigantic, miraculous tectonic events that cooled the Earth sufficiently that even though the sun is as bright as it is today, we can have an oscillating ice age cycle that makes possible in a short period of time the redemption of billions of human beings. Now, Hugh, you stated several times there, miracle, miracle of creation, miracle of the universe. Isn't that anti-scientific when you say miracle? My colleagues would might say, well, maybe it's just a coincidence that Antarctica split off from South America and happened to wander exactly over the South Pole. Or maybe it's just a coincidence that Greenland moved northward by 1,100 miles and went over a hot spot where its landmass got elevated by many thousands of feet. One of them might be coincidence, but not both. And actually, I talk in the book about how you have five simultaneous major tectonic events, probably the most dramatic being the Indian subcontinent breaking off from Madagascar and speeding towards the Asian subcontinent at a rate of 20 to 22 centimeters per year. That rate of tectonic movement has never been seen before in the history of the Earth, but it took that to create the Tibetan Plateau, a high enough piece of elevation that you can have ice coverage there at a low uh, latitude relative to the equator, and that actually plays the most significant role in cooling the planet enough that we can get an ice age cycle, even though the sun is much brighter than it was when God created the first life forms. And what I talk about in the book is it's not just five miracles, there are hundreds of them. And the fact that they all happen with perfect timing. So, for example, as the sun gets brighter and brighter, 
God steps in and makes sure that at each point in the history of the sun, we got exactly the right life uh, to reduce the greenhouse effect in the atmosphere in order to maintain an abundance of life on planet Earth. Something you actually see uh, predicted in Psalm 104, where it says that God recreates, uh, but does it. And then my, my whole challenge to people who take an evolutionary point of view recognize that the only way you can explain how life has been sustained on Earth and the abundance that it has, it takes a person with a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth to make sure that planet Earth has exactly the right life at the right time and the right abundance and the right location. Nothing else but a mind like God's mind can explain that. Now, Hugh, you state in your book, not only did a lot of things have to go right on the Earth, but the universe itself had to be a just right universe for us to have life here on this planet. Well, something I said earlier that the way to interpret the world, that the universe in which we live, is to put it in the context of God wanting to redeem billions of human beings. And what I recognize is everything we see in creation plays a role in making that happen. So, for example, the universe must contain 200 billion galaxies. Uh, if the universe were any bigger than it is, or any smaller than it is, there'd be no possibility for a planet like Earth where billions of humans could live at one time. You make the universe ever so slightly smaller, you'll never get the carbon, the oxygen, or the nitrogen that light chemistry requires. Make it ever so slightly bigger, all the elements are heavier than iron. And once again, you're missing the elements that life requires. That's just one of many examples of fine-tuning we see in the universe for the specific benefit of human beings. Yes, expand on that a little bit, Hugh. I mean, many astronomers state that there's a lot of wasted space in the universe, so how could it be intelligently designed? But you state that the massive size of the universe is essential for life on this planet. You need exactly the mass of the universe that we measure in order to make possible a planet like Earth. It needs to be exactly the right size where the stars have the separation we observe today. And so there needs to be a particular timing expansion of the universe in which you bring human beings upon planet Earth. You know, and something I wrote about in the previous book, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, we are living on planet Earth at the one location in this vast universe where we get to see 100% of the history of the universe. We're also living at the only time where that is possible. You know, my colleagues who are not Christians say, well, the fact that we're here at the only time, maybe that's just a coincidence. But we're also here at the only place where that is possible, which tells me there's a God that wanted us to read not just the book of Scripture, but the book of nature, and see how the book of nature sustains the message of the book of Scripture. And I believe if you read the book of nature carefully, you can actually see embedded in nature God's message of redemption. Now, Hugh, you also state that there needs to be the right neighborhood or the right type of galaxies around us. What do you mean by that? Well, you need the universe to be exactly the way it is to get a planet Earth. You also need to have your galaxy living in a just right cluster of galaxies. And we live in what's called the local group. But our cluster of galaxies has no analog anywhere else in the universe. It's a relatively small cluster, but is exactly the right size with the right 
collection of galaxies within it to make sure that the spiral structure of our Milky Way galaxy can remain highly symmetrical, undisturbed, unwarped, long enough that we can get human beings showing up here on planet Earth. And, you know, I've watched the Star Wars uh, uh, series of movies. What gets me is it talks about a galaxy far, far away. Well, we astronomers have looked far, far away. The only candidate galaxy we see that can support advanced life has our own Milky Way galaxy. There is no other galaxy far, far away that would be a candidate. And then we see that our solar system is residing in the only location in our Milky Way galaxy where advanced life is possible. So no matter what size scale you look at, you see fine-tuning design for the benefit of human beings on the scale of the whole universe all the way down to fundamental particles. So it seems like this planet seems to be unique. I mean, not just in the galaxy, but but in the entire universe. That's what I argue, an improbable planet. And it goes against the grain. I mean, my astronomy peers will say, well, there are 40 billion habitable planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone, which is why I devoted a chapter to habitable planets in my book, where I make the point that, yes, that figure of 40 billion assumes all that's necessary for life is that liquid water would exist at one point in the planet's history. And water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. So it's not surprising we got water in a lot of places. In fact, the most Earth-like planets we see have way too much water, 5 to 50% water instead of 0.03% that we see in planet Earth. On such planets, you'll never get continents. All you'll have is a universal uh, ocean. But what I point out in Chapter 7 of Improbable Planet, there are nine different habitable zones. So in addition to the water habitable zone, for example, you've got the ultraviolet habitable zone. And for the vast majority of stars, those two zones do not overlap. The only planet we know of that resides in all nine known habitable zones is planet Earth. Thousands of planets we've been able to discover, over 3,500, at best, we find ones that live in three habitable zones, but only Earth is in all nine. And unless you're in all nine, your planet is not habitable. Now, what about some who say, well, why does it have to be life like ours, a carbon-based kind of life form? Why can't it be a silicon-based life form or some other type of life form? Yeah, that got settled by chemists some 35 years ago when they pointed out that in order to have life, you have to have complex bonds and very stable bonds. And of all the elements we see in the periodic table, only carbon gives you the necessary bonding stability and the bonding complexity. And nothing else comes close. I mean, with silicon, for example, you discover that the proteins can only go up to about 100 isomers, and then they uh, no longer can get more complex than that, and they're not stable. Keep in mind, you've got proteins in your body with more than 10,000 amino acids in it, not just 100. So life is only possible if it's carbon-based. And scientists have recognized that now for 35 years. Now, Hugh, there'll be some skeptics still out there saying, yes, but Hugh, there are billions, billions of planets out there and stars that we haven't discovered yet. Is there a chance that there is another planet out there that could sustain life? Well, on my Facebook page, I had an atheist uh, post that saying, you know, Dr. Ross, uh, we know that there's 
100 billion trillion planets conceivably existing in the universe. That's 10 to the 23 planets. With that many planets, surely you're going to find one by chance that can sustain life. I said, well, you add up the zeros, it's only 23 zeros. You'll see in our website, it's reasons.org slash fine-tuning. It's a compendium where we calculate the possibility that the known 850 different parameters that must be fine-tuned to make life possible, that probability of that happening without divine miraculous interventions is less than one chance in 10 to the 1,050th power. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share it with your family, friends, and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. 